Hello, and welcome to the Retirement Revised Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Miller. I'm a journalist and author specializing in coverage of retirement and aging. And this is the podcast for subscribers to the Retirement Revised Newsletter. Actually, you're listening to a shorter, free version of the podcast. Subscribers get the newsletter with my weekly rundown of the top stories and trends affecting the U.S. retirement landscape, plus the full conversations with my guests. Each week, I bring on the smartest, most knowledgeable people I can find on topics like retirement planning and investing, Social Security and Medicare, and the challenges of working longer. Some of my recent guests have included Nancy Altman, one of the key leaders in the progressive movement to strengthen and expand Social Security, Jill Schlesinger, the personal finance guru at CBS News, and Mitch Tuckman, a pioneer in the emerging robo-advisory portfolio management business. This is a listener-supported podcast, and I hope you'll consider subscribing. Check it out using the Subscribe Now link at the bottom of this page. My guest this week is Chris Farrell. Chris is the author of a provocative new book called Purpose and a Paycheck, Finding Meaning, Money, and Happiness in the Second Half of Life. Farrell takes a lot of the claims that we hear so often about how an aging America will be a burden, and he turns those ideas upside down. Instead, he's offering up a vision of contribution to society and purpose-driven living. Chris is the senior economics contributor to Marketplace, the public radio business and economics program. In his book, Chris is arguing the case with very convincing economic analysis and on-the-ground reporting. He interviews dozens of older workers who are finding their way forward in the labor market and profiles companies on the leading edge of change. Here's my interview with Chris Farrell. Chris Farrell, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. And, uh, you know, we'll see what you, uh, what torture you put me through. Yeah, the shoe's on the other foot for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, glad, glad to have you here to talk about your new book. One of the things I found really, really interesting about it is the way that you're, you are flipping upside down kind of the usual narrative that we hear so often about aging in America that you know, that the aging of the country is going to create burdens, that older people are a burden. And one of the things you discuss that I think is maybe a good way to kind of hone in and kick off our conversation is your discussion in the book of something that is called the dependency ratio. There should be a swell of of music behind that. (laughs) Um, So what is the dependency ratio and what, what does it mean for the future of the country? I'm glad you started off there because the dependency ratio in all the reports that come out of Wall Street that are talking about the negative economic impact of an aging population or out of Washington, D.C., when they do those white papers, they're always using the old age dependency ratio. And the basic idea is it takes people 18 to 64, 15 to 64, depending on the series that you're looking at. And those are working people. And then 65 and older they're not working, they're dependent. Everybody over 65. Everybody. So the dependency ratio in 2000 was five working people for every person 65 years and older. And uh, it's on its way to uh, about almost three, it's 2.9. I've always had 
been uncomfortable saying things like 2.9 because we're talking about people. But anyway, it's about, you know, <laughs> almost three people. For, for you don't want to be that nine-tenths of a person. <laughs> exactly. So the dependency ratio is getting worse, and this is what we're told over and over again. There's a, some real problems with the dependency ratio. One is a lot of people are working more, and they're working longer. And so the notion that you hit 65 and you say goodbye to your colleagues and the work life forever just isn't true anymore. And so when you make certain adjustments to the dependency ratio, there's an interesting one done by the World Bank. And what they do is they look at people working and people not working. That's how they divide it. So it's and what they have found is in the United States with the growing ranks of people working longer, working. Uh, so if you think about your labor force participation rate, uh, the 60 plus, that's been going up. Uh, the 65 plus, that's been going up. Even the 70 plus is going up. So they're counting those people are still working. They're not dependent. And when they make those adjustments, the United States dependency ratio actually, you know, we actually end up improving. This doesn't get any worse. And then once they add this calculation, and I think this is incredibly important to add to this, they then added this other calculation is that if you make some reasonable projections on women's labor force participation rate increasing, that actually the United States is going to be in a better position when you're thinking about dependency ratio in 2040 and 2050 than it is currently. So basically, I think the bottom line, when you hear the old age dependency ratio, just think this doesn't give me accurate information because it's assuming that everybody 65 years and older isn't working. So it's interesting that the numbers of people working past 65 are, that those numbers are large enough in the aggregate to actually change that ratio. Because for example, one of the things I know is the case is that when you look at retirement ages, uh, they still tend to cluster around 62, which is the first year people can file for Social Security, right. and then, of course, 65, which is when Medicare eligibility happens. Now, when I say cluster, obviously, it doesn't mean everybody's doing that, but that is still kind of the predominant thing. But you're saying that the numbers of people past 65 and even into their 70s are large enough that it actually changes that math, which is very interesting. Right. And of course, you're, you know, you're making projections. So in right. 1987, you take the age group 65 to 69. 1987, it's about 19% labor force participation rate. Uh, 2018, that was about 33%. So you start making that projection. And what's that? That's about a two-thirds gain mm -hmm. over, you know, and that's over three decades or so. Um, and so, again, more and more people are working a big jump in the early 60s in the labor force participation rate. But the thing that's really surprising is how many people in their 70s. Now, you're yes. going from a very small base, obviously, and it, it, it will probably remain somewhat of a, of a small group of people. But it is still striking how many people that are in their 70s continue to work. Now, on that last point about people in their 70s, I did a story about, about people working into their 70s and 80s and beyond a few years ago for the AARP magazine. And, you know, what, what we really found was that it tends to cluster around kind of professional class and creative yep. class people. You know, it was a, uh, you know, physicians and I, we, we profiled the director of a symphony and, you know, I don't know, it's, it's not factory floor. 
folks. No, but here's one thing. Uh, this is, and again, you know, it, this is an anecdote. Yeah. And as we all know, uh, you have to be careful with anecdotes. Can't blow them up in too big a trend. But in doing research for the book, I went to Pittsburgh, and there's a nonprofit organization called New Century Careers. And what they do is they help people who want to either qualify for a machinist apprenticeship program, or they also can go through the apprenticeship program there. And so all the instructors that I interviewed were in their 70s and early 80s. And they typically work two, three days a week. And um, they all were teaching. They were mentoring mm -hmm. this younger generation. So even in uh, a lot of skilled blue-collar work, machinists, electricians, you know, there is this opportunities for mentoring. They're not necessarily going out on the, uh, the factory floor themselves mm -hmm. any mm -hmm. longer, but they're teaching a younger generation how to get a job that's going to put them out on the factory floor. And you would have loved these, these people. I mean, they would just, just cracked you up. I mean, one of them was 80 years old. He does it, uh, three days a week. And then he, um, gave me his secret recipe for fortified red wine that you can make <laughs> yourself. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then he also, he also worked on Saturdays at Costco. And I okay. said, you know, he's the guy that's standing there handing out uh, the little bits of food that you can taste. I thought he would say he's the guy who's annoys, <laughs> annoying people to upgrade to executive membership. Wasn't that one? That's and another I, job there. <laughs> that's another, I said, why are you doing this? And he says, well, you know, you get to talk to people and yes. everyone's nice. And, you know, you make a little bit of money. And, you know, right. the fact of the matter is he goes, they're not paying me enough that if I don't show up, they're not going to get too mad at me. And uh, but he goes, it's just good to be out and talking to people. Yeah. I wanted to back up to the point you made a minute ago about uh, the rising number of women in the labor force. I think that's an important point to maybe explore a little further. I think it's a point that people miss a lot, that there's reverberations to the changes that occurred in the labor force even several decades ago that are now playing out in terms of the older workforce. And you were mentioning this, that you have a higher number of women in the workforce now than we did. But I know from my reporting on, for example, Social Security disability insurance. Well, there was this, you know, a running story for a number of years, although it's changed now, was that it was a big surge in the number of people applying for disability insurance. Right. And of course, one line on that was that it was all about fraud. And it, it's really in the aggregate, it's not. You can always find these sort of sexy stories, anecdotes about people pulling off splashy, you know, uh, damaging frauds against Social Security. But in the main, it's all about demographics and changes in composition of the labor force. And one important factor there was the num just the increase in the number of women in the workforce, which means there's more people reaching the prime disability years now. Yeah. Uh, and and so, the, you know, if people don't think through how these changes reverberate down across the decades. They don't. And the other thing, I mean, this is the first, the boomer generation is the first generation of women that are retiring from careers. I mean, and women have always worked and mm -hmm. always made money, but uh, this is the first generation re that is retiring from a career. So, and one of the things that I, that I, I don't know what you think about this idea, but one of the ideas that I have played with is that women are in the vanguard of a lot of the changes we're talking about with working longer. And part of it has to do with, they live longer, so 
there's actually greater pressure on them, greater need for them mm -hmm. to stay engaged in, in the labor market. Uh, they're better educated mm -hmm. and typically healthier. Yeah. And the other thing is they were disadvantaged by throughout much of their work careers because they were in and out of the labor market. There's a penalty, the motherhood penalty, yeah. all those kinds of issues. And yet a lot of the skills that were developed about networking, about getting yourself back into the workforce, about thinking about your skills rather than your job title, all that stock of knowledge turns out to be incredibly valuable when you're in your 55, 65, 70 year old and you're looking for a job. That's really valuable knowledge to have. And well, I, yeah, and I, I think that I've certainly heard that from women who I've interviewed who are working longer. And the other thing I've heard from them is that they regard these years, you know, when I like they're in their 60s or even 70s, as kind of prime time because of those, you know, the, because of the problematic issues that you just mentioned in earlier decades. Yeah. Uh, or they were or they were discriminated against in the workplace uh, due yeah. to gender early in their career. And so now, you know, they're sort of seeing these are really prime decades for them to maybe make up lost ground in terms of not some, maybe it's money, but it also could just be achievement and, you know, fulfillment. Yeah, I think so. So, so I think that that is definitely changing, changing gears just a little bit. Another thing I wanted to theme, I want to do uh, talk about a little bit from your book is that, and again, you, you know, this idea of the aging of the population, not being a problem, but an opportunity. And you talk about the way that, it can be an opportunity to create a more inclusive society and a more vibrant yeah. economy, not just for today's older people, but it can really play out in a number of different industries. And, um, you know, you talk, for example, in the book about housing markets and public transportation and healthcare. Can you, can you just sort of uh, expand on that theme for me a little bit? So, uh, Alan Glicksman, who's at Temple University and he's been a long time involved in the, um, aging in Philadelphia. And he said something at one of the conferences I attended, probably you were there, Mark, too. And he said what he has learned throughout his long career involved in aging when it comes to urban planning or almost anything. He says, what's good for older people is good for young people and vice versa. And so if we have this aging of the population and I think there is a clear demand for better public transportation. And so, of course, we can be much more laissez-faire. And in the United States, that tends to be our, our policy, right? So if you have money, you'll figure your ways to get around. If you don't, we're gonna make it harder. But if we do have this aging of the population and there is this desire for greater public transportation, you know, you can set up policies that would encourage in metropolitan areas where a lot of the aging is going to be going on is in metropolitan areas, have policies that encourage public transportation because the demand is going to be there. One of the things that in um, doing interviews and talking to people is senior housing is going to change dramatically. First of all, the word senior is going to be retired. I mean, that's going to end. And the other thing is, I don't know if you have this where you are, but uh, I live in the Twin Cities. And when you're driving down the highway, you'll see off an exit ramp, you'll see this you know pretty nice white building and it'll have a mobile bus out in front, nothing else. And then uh, what did the people will get on the mobile bus and they'll be driven up another exit or two to go to a shopping mall, something like that. And 
nobody wants to be living in that housing anymore. I mean, there's a real rejection of that. And there's a greater interest in multi-generational housing, or at least putting things much closer to not only hospitals and doctors and the dentists, but also to the arts and culture of an area. And to be maybe not living in the same apartment building as the younger generation, but being next door to them. And so I think housing, we're going to really be thinking about housing and where do where do people live and that there will be much more of a multi-generational sense and healthcare. I mean, one of the things that uh, there's this subterranean movement about, well, healthcare is more about quality of life, more about palliative care. And, you know, maybe we'll start having doctors visiting people again, because actually that's cost efficient if you're not just doing surgery on them or sort of high tech, uh, practicing high tech medicine. And even the way we think about death is starting to change. And um, I find it interesting that uh, when I had my first child, who's now in his 30s, you know, we knew I had some friends in California, so I knew a little bit about doulas, but I had never really paid any attention. And now doulas are very common. Well, now there are death doulas and, you know, to help with the hospice movement. Mm -hmm. So again, I just think with the aging of the population, there's really these opportunities to rethink um, some of the basic infrastructure of our society to make it friendlier for people to live closer together have public transportation and have housing that is complementary as opposed to secluded. That's the first part of my interview with Chris Farrell, author of Purpose and a Paycheck. The full half hour podcast is available to Retirement Revised newsletter subscribers. This is a listener supported podcast and newsletter. No ads, anytime, anywhere. Just imagine a podcast with no annoying ads promising the most comfortable mattress you've ever slept on or the best meal delivery service in the universe. If you haven't considered a subscription, please do. For about the same amount you'd spend for a couple large lattes, you get a month's worth of the smartest conversations around on retirement and aging. Less caffeine, more smarts. Good thing, right? Subscribers get the full-length podcast interviews, plus my weekly deep dive into news and trends about retirement and aging via email. You'll find more information on subscribing at the bottom of this page. Thanks for listening.